I'm sorry, Larry. I, I didn't look down and see that you weren't there. Uh, <laughs> I was remembering a time. See, everything gets to be a good story. If we had been up all night in the dark and stumbling around, we would have a great story to tell the whole rest. You know, the, you know it's nothing. The sun would come up tomorrow and the rain will stop. Um, I was on a retreat in Hawaii once, and uh, at the, keeping the story entirely short, the, uh, we were sitting in the afternoon, and suddenly, uh, what seemed like a very short sit, uh, the manager came in. Oh, the bell rang, and I thought, wow, I must be becoming such a profound meditator. <laughs> that seems like just a few minutes that I was sitting. And uh, the time has flown by. Anyway, it was a few minutes that I'd been sitting. And the manager said, uh, we've had a call from the highway patrol, or whatever it is, civil defense, civil defense. There's been an earthquake in Japan. There's a big wave coming towards Hawaii. We're on the south shore of the big island. It's aiming right at us, and uh, we're supposed to evacuate. So go to your rooms. They're sending a bus from uh, Hilo. Go to your rooms, get your passport, get your get your tickets, get your purse, and come right back. So everybody quietly, not talking, went to their rooms, got their stuff, came back to the manager's point. Manager said, we heard again from the civil defense. They haven't got any buses. They're evacuating Hilo. So we're stuck here. Because uh, we had 70 people and no, and no cars because everybody came on planes. They said, take high ground. So we're in, we're in two-story bungalows right on the seashore. There is no high ground, and behind it is a jungle. Uh, and so, you know, because everybody thought I'll run in the jungle, but you can't run in the jungle. As a matter of fact, they said, don't run in the jungle. That's going to be worse. So, so, but it was a great, it was a great experience. Everybody went to their, you know, went back. He said, uh, they said, we need to take all the uh, dry food, crackers and fruit, up to the second floor, and mosquito repellent and matches. I remember everybody did all these jobs quietly, well-behaved. No, nobody got upset, which is a really important part of it. If you know what's happening, you just do what's the right thing. You don't get hysterical about it. You just do it. And... Um, we got all this done, and then we sat down, and this, it was as if you're sitting like this. Let's imagine this is the room, and you're looking out over the ocean, and you can see the um, a horizon. And everybody's sitting and watching the horizon, and we're imagining suddenly there's going to be a, you know, a, a wall of water coming towards us. I'm sitting next to my friend James Barras, and uh, my friend... Uh, uh, Joseph, who was teaching, said there was once a certain Zen master and people asked him, what would you do if um, the waters of the west and the east and the north and the south started to rise? What would you do? And he said, I don't know, I guess I'd just sit. And he said, so let's just sit. So we're just sitting, you know. But all of a sudden, nobody is sleepy, you know. Sleep. (laughs) (laughs) You can see everybody. Is sitting up, they're all alert, sleep is dispelled, because you're alert. You see, you have to, you know, what would we do if a wall of water came? It probably wouldn't have done any good to sit or not sit. But, but you know, when, when, it's, when it's not something that might happen, but something that is happening, you just do the next thing, and everybody keeps it together. And not only do they keep it together, but they keep it together sweetly. I remember we sat... And I'm sitting next to my good friend James, and we're just sitting because we were all very well-behaved retreatants. And uh, at one point, one of us, I don't even remember which one, put up the hand like this, and the other person took it. And we sat and we held hands. This is not, I'm not inviting you to sit and hold hands, we're just having a rain. But I mean to make the point, I mean to make the point that when the mind is clear, we don't, do, we don't get hysterical, we say, this is what's happening. And we do something, we make the best, and we express ourselves in love. I didn't write a Dharma talk. I was going to do it in the last hour, which I didn't have light to do. So I brought the material for doing it. I, read the, I brought this piece from uh, Sunday's New York Times magazine. 
This begins with a story about B.J. Miller, who recently retired after five years of being the director of the Zen Hospice in San Francisco, um, to be doing other kinds of more wide-ranging teaching. Uh, B.J. Miller was a sophomore at Princeton when one Monday night in December 1990, he and two friends went out for drinks and around 4 a.m. found themselves ambling around 4 a.m. toward a convenience store for sandwiches. They decided to climb a commuter train parked at the adjacent rail station for fun. Miller scaled it first. When he got to the top, electrical current arced out of a piece of equipment into the watch on his wrist. 11,000 volts shot shot through his left arm and down his legs. When his friends reached him on the roof of the train, smoke was rising from his feet. Miller remembers none of us. His memories didn't kick in until several days later when he woke up in the burn unit of St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey talks about the fact that he had no idea of what had happened and no memory. And what he had actually was destroyed his two lower parts of his legs, which needed to be amputated. And one arm was very, very um, destroyed as well. And uh, people couldn't visit him. Uh, No visitors were allowed in his room. The burn unit was a sterile environment. But then his arm was going to be removed, amputated, just below the elbow. And a dozen friends and family members packed into a 10-foot-long corridor between the burn unit and the elevator just to catch a glimpse of him as he was rolled into surgery. They all dared to show up, Miller remembers thinking. They all dared to look at me. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't see it. This assured Miller, as did the example of his mother, Susan, a polio survivor who has used a wheelchair since Miller was a child. She had never seemed diminished. After the operation, when Miller was rolled through the hallway again, he opened his eyes as he passed by her and said, Mom, now you and me have more in common. It wasn't that Miller was suddenly enlightened. Internally, he was in turmoil. But in retrospect, he credits himself with doing one thing right. He saw a good way to look at his situation and committed to faking that perspective, hoping that his genuine self might eventually catch up. I love that. He wasn't there, but he said, I could be there. He refused, for example, to let himself behave, believe that his life was extra difficult now, only uniquely difficult, as all lives are. I was just so impressed with that line. Uniquely difficult, as all lives are. He resolved to think of his suffering as simply, quote, a variation on a theme that we all deal with. To be human is really hard, he says. His life had never felt easy, even as a privileged, able-bodied suburban boy with two adoring parents, but he never felt entitled to any angst. He saw unhappiness as an illegitimate intrusion into the carefree reality he was supposed to inhabit. And don't we all do that, he realized. Don't we all treat suffering as a disruption to existence instead of as an inevitable part of it? He wondered what would happen if you could, quote, reincorporate your version of reality, of normalcy, to accommodate suffering. As a disabled person, he was getting all kinds of signals that he was different and separated from everyone else. But he worked hard to see himself as merely somewhere on a continuum between man on his deathbed and the woman who had misplaced her car keys to let his accident heighten his connectedness to others rather than isolating him. This was the only way, he thought, to keep from hating his injuries and hating himself. I think this is so brilliant. I think this is exactly what we are all of us doing, that everyone is somehow on a continuum between being a triple amputee and losing your car keys, that we're all on the precipice. There's a very famous Zen story that if you've been on retreat before, you've probably heard of a monk who's 
walking along and strolling along in some ancient time, and suddenly a tiger leaps out of the jungle and chases him, and the monk runs to the edge, runs, 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 tiger runs, 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 until he comes to the edge of a cliff and he can't run anymore. The tiger is roaring along behind him, so he leaps off the cliff and holds on to a branch that's sticking out. And the tiger looks down at him and roars at him. And he's holding on to the branch. And he looks down, and down in this cavern, there's rushing waters over rocks. Surely he'd be dead if he lost his handhold. He's holding on. He sees just in front of him holding on by a, a vine, and he sees just ahead of him that uh, a mouse has come out of a corner of the ledge and is gnawing away at the vine. And then he sees, right next to the vine, there's a stem coming out with a berry growing on it. And the berry is ripe, and he picks the berry and he eats it, and he says, this berry is delicious. That's the story. It's a very important story because, all of, first of all, if you go to Korea, where they have beautiful, beautiful temple drawings, paintings on the walls of temples that are very different from anywhere else. They're, they look like water paints, uh, tempera almost. They're very bright colors. And this is one of the prominently featured stories uh, in the different temples. I'm sure that you understood that the moral of that story that that's true, we are all of us that monk, that having been born, we're hanging on to a vine somewhere, and the vine is getting gnawed, and we don't know when the vine is going to break, when the vine is going to get uh, used up, or its strength will let go. There is no other alternative, but uh, surely uh, old age, sickness, and death, it's said that the, the, the existential awareness waking up moment in the story of the Buddha is the moment that he realized in various different variations he either goes out from his palace or he come, becomes aware of or uh, otherworldly uh, forces cause him to imagine. But he sees that, in fact, people age and get sick and die. And really, in the, when, we, when, when I started studying that philosophy about 40 years ago, old age, sickness, and death seemed like old age for sure seemed a long time away. And lo and behold, as my mother-in-law used to say, long of blessed memory, used to say, one turn around and it's all over. But really, it doesn't seem like 40 years went by since then, but suddenly I got to be 80. And it's really true. We come right away. The life is over. Not quite over yet, but it's gone very fast, and I'm lucky that I get to have old age sickness and death. A lot of people don't even get up to the old age, and not the sickness yet, but for sure death. That's there for all of us, and the question is, what makes it meaningful for us to be here now? What makes us lively? What makes us determined to stay in this life and be active in it? Times get difficult for everybody. I really love that in this particular story, I just read it day before yesterday, I thought this is exactly the story that I need. He said he saw a way of faking that perspective and hoping that he'd grow into it. That his life was extra, not extra difficult, only uniquely difficult, as all lives are. I think if we realize that, it changes entirely who we are and that the reason that we're here, any of us, is that we feel like we hope to be transformed. That we don't, I'm, I'm not here and doing these practices because I want to be a good blessing sayer, or that, uh, you know, this particular practice, by the way, of the saying of blessings, I'm going to really encourage you. It's not only the thinking about to be good, to wish well to people, I hope I do, but to take this on as a serious practice. The actual recitation in the mind over and over and over again 
of a, a particular set of phrases that you settle on. It's not the phrases that are magic. It's not like open sesame or Rumpelstiltskin or some magic phrase that if you get just right, it's going to work. It's the fact that you are keeping your attention on one single thing. And what happens when you keep your attention on one single thing is all of the other things that go on in our consciousness on the periphery that distract us and cloud the mind and frighten us they fall away because our attention is so focused here. And when they fall away, we see things as they actually are. Like the, the like example I gave you before of, well, okay, this, this uh, wave is on its way from Japan. It'll either come right where we are or not. There's nothing we can do about it. So we just sit. What happens when we sit is what happened for me anyway is I realized not only how dear James is to me, but I started to think about my family back here and how dear they are, and other people and my friends and the people that I know, and all the people in the room who I've been looking at that whole week that I was there, who also were thinking about their families, I was sure. And I also realized in that moment that as I'm thinking about this one and the other one, any... Um, recrimination, anything that I had not forgiven anybody in my life seemed so trivial at that moment. You know, I realized we're all hanging on a hair. I really realized that every one moment to the next is a precious gift to spend any mental real estate remembering who I have grudges on seems entirely gratuitous. It's not effective to keep me feeling alive and vital and it doesn't do any good for anybody. I was thinking about uh, uh, my, my uh, daughter drove my grandson back to school at UC Santa Cruz on yesterday morning. Uh, he was meant to go on Sunday because classes started yesterday, but the, the torrential downpour, so they waited until 5 o'clock yesterday morning and drove. And if you don't live around here, you know that the drive, you go south past San Francisco, and then you go west over a circuitous mountain uh, down into Santa Cruz. And Highway 17 has lots of accidents on it, but also has cliff sides all around it. And because of the heavy rain, a very big mudslide, and Liz and her, uh, and my grandson and his friend were driving down, and they saw that this, their lane was advancing. And the other lane was practically stopped altogether. It was just a trickle of traffic coming through. And when they got up to where it was blocked, there was a van from one of the TV news uh, stations. And there'd been a mudslide that had quite come down and engulfed most of the van and dumped it into a culvert at the side of the road. Now, there was one man in the van. He was a camera newsman. He was driving back, and he was okay. And the fire department came and dug him out. But you think to yourself, you could have the best, lowest cholesterol, you could have the best controlled blood pressure, you could have the best of health so that you're a TV news personality and that you're going out in the morning to do this dramatic job. You could be anyone doing anything, and you don't know when the cliff is actually going to fall down on you. And you might have got buried in it, and you might not have gotten buried in it. When you start to think about how precarious this whole thing, that, that, that's the, really what's left is forgiving anybody who's ever, in, for whom there's any hint of not forgiving left in you, so that you feel yourself to be the loving being that you can actually be. But to actually uh, be uh, grateful for having this day to really yet one more day in this precarious world. We made it. You know, it's an amazing thing. Everybody who's here has made it so far to this day. And every time I go by, um, I used to think this, not so much anymore, because I'd go by an accident and I'd think, oh, if I'd been five minutes earlier, I could have been in this accident on the bridge, or three minutes earlier, this accident just happened, or uh, in the next train or the next plane or something. But the thing is, when I think about that, it's the pres it's, I've lost the tr real truth, which 
is, having lived to this point, it means that I have missed every accident and every mishap and every catastrophe two miles away and uh, 50,000 miles away for the last 80 years, that I've just missed all those accidents near and far. And that's an amazing, when you think about the chances of that, that's amazing, it's a miracle. You get up again in the morning, it's a miracle. You know, something, you got yet another day. When I have the right perspective about it, the, the, the stuff that my mind gets caught up in, being annoyed at, seems so nonsense. In my, uh, one, maybe both of the meetings that I had with people this afternoon, we're talking about why are we doing this mental practice? You know, what good is it really going to do us? So I was talking about it balances the mind. It, it, it really does. Really, I hope you believe that it is the continued recitation over and over again of these particular blessing phrases, any blessing phrases, over and over and over again, blocks out the peripheral noise that's, that's endlessly confusing, with the result that the mind settles into a more concentrated place where it feels more ease, where it actually does feel safer. It's not so easily startled. You may notice, I notice actually, in the one day that I'm here, how much sitting we've done together, and being in this quiet place and not having phones ringing and not being on the freeway, that my mind is already way more relaxed than yesterday. And I think about stuff that was annoying me yesterday, just before I left home and came here. And it's still not stuff that I'm happy is happening with this problem and this thing in my life and the other thing and the other. I'm not happy about it. But I'm not so really tense about it. My mind is a little bit more expansive. It says, well, we'll figure this out when you get home. Maybe it'll work out. It gets to be more forgiving. When you're on retreat, you'll notice that as the week goes on, you may discover there's so many things. You think, who could get annoyed on a retreat center? It's so peaceful here. I asked both the groups I met with, anybody here got annoyed today? Everybody got annoyed. Everybody put, they said, yes. I, it's incredibly easy to become annoyed, no matter how peaceful the circumstances. You can get annoyed that it rained so much. You could get annoyed at yourself for not bringing enough rain gear. You get annoyed for the people not moving fast enough on the line when you're waiting to get the food, or that the food is running out before you got there, and now you have to worry that you'll have enough, or the person next to you chomps too loud while they're eating, or snores too much while you're sleeping. I mean, there's not. I mean, this is really the closest thing to the Garden of Eden here, and it's easy <laughs> to become annoyed. I mean, it's beautiful here and comfortable and nice. How many people got annoyed at something today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because we have nervous systems, and they're, and they're all the time on the verge of either not wanting something or wanting something or suddenly wanting something that you didn't want before. Honestly, somebody was telling me as we were gathering for a meeting this afternoon, one of those group meetings, I can't remember why. I, maybe we were talking about where this person lived. But anyway person mentioned about uh, the um, uh, complete uh, solar eclipse that's going to happen next August. That I Somehow I missed that. I didn't know about it. And its, it's track is somewhere over the northern United States through Idaho. That's not that far from here. So, and, you know, this is in one minute he's saying about he was really wanting to go to the see a solar eclipse. You know, you could watch it on TV and all that, but it's not the same as being there. And as he's saying that, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what I'm doing in August. I wonder, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm teaching a retreat, but I, the retreat's in the end of August. Maybe, then, maybe this is the beginning of August. And I never really saw a solar eclipse in the real. I saw pictures of it, I saw it on TV. But maybe I could just go to Idaho this summer and see it. It'd be one of those things on the bucket list. I want to not have a bucket list. It's ridiculous to have a bucket list. Because, you know, how many things you put in the bucket? You're the same dead at the end. And you don't get extra points for a big bucket. 
But one of the reason that you're laughing and I was laughing at the time, I said to people, who here suddenly wants to go to Idaho? And I guess everybody wanted to go. Because the mind does not sit quietly. It does, it's very hard to have a satisfied mind. It's easily upset by something it wants. Aha, a solar eclipse in Idaho. I didn't have that yet. I could have it. Aha, more rain just when it's lunchtime. I don't want it. You know, it just doesn't say, huh, that's great. Look at that. Solar eclipse. That's amazing. How awesome it is to be in a, in a world that unfolds this way and the planets are in the right side, play, plays, and it's a full moon tonight. Awesome. And not want to go or have more of it or keep the full moon. Or... It's hard to have a satisfied mind. That's just the way it is as human beings. We want stuff that looks good. And it's not that we have naughty minds. Everybody has that. And uh, actually, one of the, one of the um, understandings of what happens <laughs> when the mind gets a little bit more composed, a little bit more settled down, it's not that you don't notice that that's an interesting idea. A catalog comes in the mail. You don't need anything. But the catalog came in the mail, so idly leafing through the catalog, you didn't know that you wanted this particular blanket that adjusts to your body, whatever, whatever it is. And you didn't know about it, but now that you look at it, you say, hmm, that'd be a good thing to have. And that desire arises, it's hard. Or that something else, somebody calls and says something or other, the meeting has been canceled for tomorrow, and you think, ah, I prepared so much. That it's hard to say. This is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I have enough. Thank you very much. I don't need it. To have a mind that's just content with what it's got, not ruffling itself up with need, not irritating itself with um, not liking. I have to get rid of this. Not upsetting itself with fear. This may be the really the important thing that I hope to get around to talking about. My friend Julie Landsberg just retired from being for 25 years the principal horn player for the Metropolitan Opera. And um, we were talking particularly about uh, those pieces uh, that uh, those, those particular uh, operatic Right, uh, composers who compose all of a sudden a very long uh, solo, say for horn, in the middle of something. I'm not sure now which opera it was that I'd heard. And uh, it's all quiet in the whole opera house, and then the horn plays by itself for 30 seconds or 45 seconds. You can imagine for a horn player to be playing by itself, he couldn't really. I said, you get nervous? She said, you know, I'm good now. She said, she said among other things, I, since, actually the way I came to meet her is that uh, she had heard me teaching loving kindness meditation at a retreat somewhere else, and she, and she began practicing, and I met her because she wanted to meet me when I was in New York. I was happy to meet her. Um, she said, what I do now before we play is I go in a back room by myself, and I always did that anyway, she said, and, pr and warm up and play the horn. She said, but now I warm up, I play the horn, and I play parts of what I'm gonna play, and I imagine the whole audience out there. And as I'm playing, I am sending metta to the whole audience out there. And then when I finish doing that, and I go to play, I, I don't have any, um, alarm about them. I've made them my friends. And I watched her, um, I watched her on, a, on, a, on a, a live stream of her teaching a master class and teaching horn players to, who would play a passage and then she'd say, now play this again and think about people they're going to play for or the people who are in your family who you love. Play the passage now with metaphrases in your heart, and they play again, and it sounds different. It really sounds different. Now, whether it sounds different because it's made your heart happy and therefore relaxed, because you're really 
thinking such salubrious thoughts and the mind is soothed when it's thinking salubrious thoughts, just in the uh, antithetical way to the way that the mind is razzed up when you're thinking irritated and adversarial thoughts. Your mind feels better when you're blessing. Really, it's like you're sitting in the middle of a of an antenna sending out blessings. By the way, you know, we keep talking about sending out and it sounds like we're sending email, you know. So I want to really say the heart that's being transformed is here. But it's very helpful to think about that as a metaphor. Can I really exp- expansively feel those feelings? So, Because people start to con- be concerned about it. I don't feel it coming out of me. It does not have to feel like it's coming out of you. People feel that sometimes. They feel viscerally warm or tingly or whatever. The main thing that I really want to encourage people to hope to feel is at ease. I think of all those blessings, the most important blessing is may I feel safe. What we say to people is when we want to console them is don't be afraid. Everything's going to be all right. We say it to people. It's the thing that's that's taught to um, paramedics and first responders that when you come to somebody in some situation that requires a first responder, that what you say to them the first thing is, uh, relax, you're going to be all right, we're here. Everything's going to be all right. That it doesn't necessarily, it's not a promise that they'll even survive, but that somebody reassuring you, relax, don't be afraid, is actually, first of all, feels good in you, and second of all, it's very reassuring to you. Somebody's taking care of me. It's probably the most primal feeling we have. We pick up babies. Why does it work? A baby falls down, hurts himself, startled, a big holler out. You pick it up and you say, everything's going to be all right, and they stop. And how could the knee stop hurting so much, you know, in one second, two seconds? And it's probably because they didn't hurt themselves so much as they startled themselves. And you pick them up and you say, everything's going to be all right. And you're going to be okay. I'll kiss it and make it better. And then it gets better. How does that happen? Except that we feel loved and we relax and we're not so frightened and it doesn't hurt as much. When we're not frightened and our mind is relaxed, nothing hurts as much, not physical pain and not mental pain. I think the main thing is to unfrighten ourselves. I think about uh, the situation with Julie or other musicians that uh, uh, get frightened because they won't do well or people won't like them or it won't be a good show or they'll play a wrong note. And then sometimes, but if you talk to musicians or actors, Say, did you ever play a wrong note? They sure they did, but their career didn't end. Just beforehand, you tell yourself a story, it'll be a calamity. It'll just be one wrong note in a whole life of mostly not wrong notes. You know? we, we somehow, when the mind is not settled, we forget what's actually true, and we frighten ourselves by what we imagine might be true. And we can't talk ourselves out of, you know, I can't say to myself, don't be frightened, but I can say to myself, may I feel safe? May I feel happy? May I feel strong? May I live with ease? Why not? And not worry about, well, but I'm in this situation, that situation. I'm just responding to sentences that I've said over and over. But really, I can't tell you enough how much I think the over and over is an important part. I'll tell you, this is is a full disclosure, so you'll really maybe have a sense of what I mean. I like to say, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. And I do say that, especially when I'm teaching that. And I do say feel and not be, because it... uh, it uh, supports my not getting involved in any philosophical thoughts about who could be safe in a world like this and who can be happy in a world like this or who could be strong if you have this or that or the other. I could feel those things even in any situation. And I'm counting on it to feel that. But not only because I'll talk myself into it, 
but because by reciting some phrases that I know over and over again, the, phrase, the saying of the phrases over and over is itself a calming event. People who do mantra practice, people who do uh, mala practice, people who do rosary practice, say the same words over and over and over again. And the words are words that are comforting to them, but more than that, the words, in a certain sense, drown out the other kinds of peripheral stimuli that could upset the mind or attract the attention or distort the attention. It's really about calming the mind down. The, the, the uh, um, what did I say? Uh, uh, full disclosure. When I began to practice, uh, my teacher Sharon Salzberg had just the year before learned metta practice herself from um, Upandita in Burma. Upandita used to come to the United States more than he does now. He's old uh, and teach uh, mindfulness practice. And he had been Sharon's teacher as a mindfulness teacher. She went to Burma and spent six weeks doing metta practice and came back and uh, started teaching. You know, I love that there are stories in the Zen tradition of so-and-so. He practiced for 40 years, and then he had his breakthrough awareness when he was 60, and uh, then he practiced another 20 years to consolidate his awareness before he began to teach. It, we... we <laughs> wait 10 minutes after we get some new instruction and run out to teach it to other people if it seems helpful. helpful. But I think we're, we're different, you know. Anyway, Sharon was giving me these private instructions in the middle of a mindfulness retreat. It was great. I am endlessly, ha uh, I'm endlessly grateful for that. But I, and I had to see her every single day for another interview, and she'd say, now do this, now do this, now do this. And I was very, very um, scrupulous about practicing. And she said, um, well, I'll, here's the whole story. She said, first of all, um, before I even tell you the phrases that you should say, I'll give you these, uh, tell you these benefits of metta practice, which are on one of your sheets. So hint, hint, you could do this. She said, take this, these benefits on this list back to your room and uh, learn the benefits and then tomorrow I'll teach you the phrases to say. So I went back to my room and I said to myself, I sat down, said, people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. And I did it over and over and over again until I could look away and still be doing it and did more and more and more until it was going all by itself. And then when I stopped, I felt really good. My whole body was buzzing with a very pleasant kind of aroused attention. Imagine, you know, when people really, really find uh, a series of phrases, prayers perhaps, that they do over and over and over and over and over. The, the mind gets so focused and absorbed in them that it really transforms the consciousness and you feel better. And actually I'd gone to take up the practice with Sharon because for reasons not not really uh, germane to going into right now. I, it was not a time in my life when I was at ease and my mind was quite distraught and I didn't feel very good and was really unhappy about a lot of things, including my meditation practice, which was very complex at that time. But all of a sudden, I felt great. My mind felt very clear and very at ease. And I hadn't even learned a phrase. <laughs> no, I wasn't even before the phrases, no phrases yet. But I did learn the efficacy of saying something over and over and over and over and over and over again. I can't make that too clear. So the following day, 
I started with the phrases, and I think the phrases are right here on, on that sheet. Probably it says, may I be free of enmity and danger, may I, have, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being, may I be free of enmity and danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being, may I be free. And I did it over and over and over again. And it's clunky sentences, you know. Later on, maybe a year or so later, uh, Sharon and Joseph and people who were teaching with them, and ultimately I as well, uh, began to teach it to Western students in other words, like, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. And I remember that Sharon said, well, we're doing that now because people don't like to say may I be free of enmity and danger. They don't like to say the word danger, and they don't like to say the word enmity, and they don't get it what it means, mental happiness or physical happiness of ease of well-being. So I don't get it what either, mental happiness or physical happiness, but I had a sense of what it means, mental happiness and physical happiness. I, I th in the beginning, wasn't quite clear about the may I be free of enmity and danger because I thought it meant something like may I be free of other people's enmity. And uh, I had heard that the Buddha had taught this practice. Uh, he, he had given the Metta Sutta, he delivered the Metta Sutta teaching to monks when they were going to go out on their own. And it was kind of like an amulet to uh, protect them against other things. So I thought that the enmity and danger was coming towards them, and this would protect them. And I soon became clear that the biggest danger I, I have to my own happiness and peace of mind is enmity in my own mind against anything. That's, I think, the whole clue. If I didn't want to say anything else tonight, that's probably where I wanted to get to, because I think that the whole point is to discover the pleasure, the absolute liberating pleasure, of a non-adversarial mind with anything. I cannot like things. I remember so many times since I started to teach metta and people would say, uh-oh, you're not gonna ask me to send loving feelings to this or that or to him or her or I'm not gonna wish well to this one or that one. It's not about sending greeting cards to this one or that one or even wishing them well. It's really about not wishing them ill. It's about really, may all beings be at ease. May all beings be at ease. That's pretty benign. It's not even wishing them well. But may all beings be at ease, including me, and having enmity in my mind, and um, making, making feeling that people are my adversaries. If I people my mind with adversaries, I will feel unsafe. I really think that the injunctions to... Um, Larry said it the other night when he said, in every religious tradition that we... the major religious traditions that we're at all conversant about, the Buddha said, radiating kindness over the entire world. And uh, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And the Hebrew Bible... Uh, gives the injunction to love your neighbor as yourself and to protect the stranger in your midst. I, I really think it's to make the stranger your neighbor and make nobody a stranger. If no one is a stranger and everyone becomes your kin, everyone becomes your kin, you don't have to be frightened. You're living in a world that's full of your kin. And if my own heart is non-adversarial, then I, I, have, I, I, I walk around with a, a safe mind that doesn't have enemies in it. May I be free of enmity means may I not have enemies in my mind. So there are, of course, people that I like better than other people. And I think that one of the things about this particular practice that we're doing is it's really a twofold practice. The, I think if, to begin with, for sure, the main thrust of it is to calm down the mind. And we could be 
just calming down the mind by really focusing on our breath. We wouldn't have to focus on these mantra. I actually like them as focusing devices better than the breath. Somehow when I stay with breath, I sometimes get so focused on the breath I get a little bit overwhelmed energetically. Or I fall asleep. I can do it, but I find it's juicier to um, uh, deepen my attention, steady my attention by doing it on loving phrases, blessing phrases. We're really doing the same thing. When we go to, we, we sometimes think, oh, now I'm going to a mindfulness retreat, now I'm going to a meta retreat. I think they both have, as their goal, the uh, the uh, unfolding of wisdom, everyone is doing exactly the life that they can do. Everyone is really um, inhabiting the role they're inhabiting because of every circumstance that ever happened forever and ever. Which doesn't mean I have to approve of it or like it. It just means I don't need to be, I don't need to make it my enemy. I can do things to take care of myself. I think in a certain way, I used to for a long time say, we're going to stop saying um, wisdom and compassion or loving kindness and compassion. We'll say loving kindness is compassion. That every moment of clear, balanced attention in which we're not rejecting anything or holding on to anything, Every moment of clear, balanced attention that's paid in the spirit of seeing clearly what's happening so that we can respond to it in a way that doesn't create suffering is a moment of compassion for ourselves and for the whole world. That it's extra to say, this is mindfulness, now it's compassion, now it's uh, metta, now it's loving kindness. It's all manifestations of wisdom. Sometimes I think, you know, tomorrow we'll come back and teach. These are four manifestations of equanimity. But that's all right. These are all teaching things. Fundamentally, I think they're all manifestations of wisdom. And the fact that when we're wise, we realize everybody's doing exactly the only thing that they can do. And we can educate them, we can love them, we can take care of them, we can restrain them. But we don't have to wish ill in our own hearts and disturb our own hearts with it. You know, if we named this forgiveness practice and we said, come for a week of forgiveness practice, nobody would come. Or not so many people would come because, first of all, it wouldn't sound fun. It's not as pleasant as loving kindness. That's really lovely. But ultimately, I think we're called upon to forgive everything. I was happy to read you that story about B.J. Miller. That's a massive forgive. I had, uh, uh, there was a person who was a student here at Spirit Rock who developed um, a uh, degenerative uh, neurologic disease in her mid-30s when her life was really uh, developing wonderfully. She professionally was established and had really altogether a wonderful life until she got a diagnosis of this disease, which was not a curable disease, as they are, those kinds of diseases, that she was destined to have now as part of her life experience. And uh, she, told, uh, she told the Wednesday morning group uh, that she was a part of at the time that she now had a big sign on her bedroom wall so that she saw it every morning when she got up, and the sign said... Uh, uh, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And to be able to do a thing like that requires such a massive forgiving of life for what happens, you know? Everybody who's had somebody in their family who's been stricken with a terrible disease and maybe lost to them, this isn't what we wanted. We don't get over feeling sad. 
We get of a, maybe the immediate agony of being bereft, but you feel sad about it always. Feel sad and and um, I think what we become, uh, I hope, what we become is um, more tender, more easily touched. Oh, this is, I, I see I have to end, so it's a good place to end. I, uh, my husband, some, some time ago, periodically he'll say to me, so what do you think all these years of practice, how have you changed? So, you know, people run out of things to say every once in a while. They've been together a long time. <laughs> so I say, what's it done for you, this, this practice all these years? I say, well, I became kind. We see we have this practice now, I say, I became kind. And he says, nah, you were always kind. So then I say, and it's really quite true, I became kinder. I really became kinder because I am aware much faster than I used to be of when I'm really nursing some sort of a little adversarial retributional scheme. I'll just say so-and-so to this or that to somebody, and then they'll feel bad that they slighted me about this and that. And I catch my mind doing a thing like that, and I say to myself, give it up, what are you doing, you know? You really want to do that, mess up your mind with that? And I really don't. And if I catch myself and I don't do it, I feel like I dodged a bullet, honestly. Because when you do something like that, that's a little bit under... Even you don't tell anybody about it, but you mess up your mind with it, you don't feel good afterwards. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a saying from the Buddha, which makes it sound a little bit prissy almost, I think, said that, you know, if you really watch those kinds of things, watch the mind, and, you know, really stop it from doing it, make a, a guard in your mind from falling into this or that. He said, you'll feel the bliss of blamelessness. And I used to think... Uh, I don't know how many people would come on retreat if you said, on this retreat, you're going to feel the bliss. After this retreat, you're going to feel the bliss of blamelessness. It's not what we usually put together in the same sentence with bliss. But I think actually to be able to feel, I love everybody, and I behaved as if I loved everybody. I have no enemies in my mind, and I forgave everybody. So uh, the um, administrative committee of this particular teaching cohort decided that we would uh, end the Dharma talk at 8.30 tonight and not walk and come back to sit. And out of a general sense of compassion for us all, we would immediately sit for a few minutes quietly and then chant for five or ten minutes together and then all go to bed. If that's all right with you. Thank you very much. There's the option of sitting there. Hmm? There's the option of staying in the pit, too. Oh, Donald is pointing out there is the option. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.